Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. This is episode 4 and my guest this week is Sharon Anolik from uh, Privacy Panacea. Is that the best way to pronounce your last name? It is. That was perfect. Ah, fantastic. Tell me a little bit about Privacy Panacea. What exactly do you guys do? Sure. Privacy Panacea has been busy since coming into its inception about 4 years ago. We do everything from helping companies to build and mature their privacy programs to helping to evaluate potential acquisition targets for companies during the due diligence stage, also provide some expert witness work um in privacy related litigation and um generally advise companies on how to get data right. Uh, it sounds like an impossible job. <laughs> <laughs> It's a fun job. I love it. Uh, let's start there. What's uh, people who get into law are not necessarily dreaming of doing corporate law. It's kind of like the boring segment of your industry. Uh, was this what you wanted to do coming out of college? Uh, was was law always like a top tier thing on your mind? Uh, it's funny that you position it that way. So I knew I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. <clears throat> What's interesting is that I don't feel that I'm acting as a lawyer these days. I'm not practicing law. I am advising companies with a business and operations perspective. So I'm really acting more as a privacy and security consultant than as their lawyer um these days, but I had plenty of years as in-house counsel, as outside counsel, as deputy city attorney, um helping companies and entities from a legal standpoint, and what I realized is that I loved being the business owner for privacy and for data and helping to think strategically about about data, data strategy, data enablement, data protection, and that's really where my career morphed from being a uh, counsel to being a chief privacy officer. And then I just brought all of that into um the building of Privacy Panacea and act as often a external CPO for companies. Privacy is like the <laughs> biggest hot button topic now okay. as it relates to data breach. You mentioned data protection uh, as mm-hmm. part of your, you know, big consulting things. When when companies come to you for consulting advice guidance just or look over their practices and so on you're uh, as a consultant representing a company on 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 I don't want to separate it into sides but you're helping them understand privacy policy how privacy policy relates to data protection and in the age of breaches where you can't open a website or open a newspaper every day and and, and not see a uh, a breach that has privacy rights violations or implications for customer privacy how much of a a top of mind issue is that for cso's and what are you know when 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 a cso or a cso come to you uh for guidance on their uh, their entire uh, privacy posture or posture of the company as it relates to privacy what are you know what are the top of mind things um Uh, they're reaching out to you for. Yeah, and it's interesting. Sometimes what they initially reach out for isn't uh, what I think is their most critical issue, and so I help them understand that. 
often they'll reach out when there has been an adverse event, right? They've had some type of data leakage, a data loss event, and they want help in building up their program and increasing and strengthening their protections. And so I'll help them look at their overall program to see where there are opportunities to strengthen it, either from an administrative standpoint, a technical standpoint, um, how to best strengthen the program. Um, but what I what I often help them with that they may not know about initially is that data protection is one piece of a holistic data management program. The other is around data enablement, right? Data is a huge asset for companies and they should be thinking about how can they support the business's goals in utilizing and leveraging their data in ways that are both compliant with all of the laws and regulations and industry standards out there and in line with the business's strategic goals and their customers or consumers or patients, depending on their industry, what their expectations are. And taking all of those pieces into account, I think is really the strategic side of data management that I'm encouraging CISOs and CPOs to take a bigger leadership role in. When you say their data, are you talking about uh, company data only? Or are you bundling user, uh, user data uh, for some of those industries that, you know, collect and, and maintain and process user data? Yeah, it's both, right? It's the data of the data subjects for whom they provide services, right? In the healthcare industry, those might be patients. In the retail industry, those might be uh, customers or consumers. So it's the user data as well as um, company data, often referred to as company confidential data, which is still quite valuable for companies. And I don't know that all companies are really thinking of data as a valuable asset that needs um, protection, not just to comply with laws and regulations and industry standards and contractual obligations, but also as part of their overall intellectual property portfolio. Right. And in this age of big data, uh, user data is the product in many cases. A lot of, there are a lot of big companies, huge companies, credit, credit monitoring bureaus and so on that use uh, uh, customer data to build user profiles. And, and this triggered my mind. I, I was looking through your, um, uh, your history and resume. You uh, served as chief privacy officer back in the day for Ask Jeeves. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, for the kids listening, Ask Jeeves was the precursor to Google, a uh, search engine uh, that was originally, I would guess, ground zero for this whole notion of uh, the uh, what the search industry looks like today, the search marketing industry, so to speak. Uh, can you talk a little bit about being there in ground zero? Did you see back then, did you envision uh, the internet and uh, data moving across the internet being what it is today? I know it's hard for us to uh, look ahead 10, 10 years, but what was it like at the time during the dot-com boom? Because I remember Ask Jeeves, I remember, I used to, as a journalist, write about this company during the dot-com boom, I believe it was the early 2000s. That's right. Um, That's right, in the early 2000s. You know, I think Ask Jeeves was a tech company like most of the uh, dot-com companies of its day, moving very fast, not as focused on the um, the legal or regulatory framework, in part because the legal and regulatory framework that would ultimately govern this industry wasn't yet... Um, it didn't exist at the time. Place. 
Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. And so it was very exciting to be part of a cadre of very um, initial chief privacy officers. We were all in touch with one another and helping to influence the policy that ultimately um, became codified later on through regulations, uh, either self-regulation or legislative. So it was a very exciting time. <clears throat> and I experienced what many of my um, my colleagues at other companies were, which is that the companies themselves didn't necessarily understand um, <clears throat> what we were talking about when we raised privacy issues. They didn't necessarily think of data in the way that we think of it now. So I looked at, at the time I was in-house counsel <clears throat> for Ask Jeeves, and I looked at all of the search results that we were um uh, collecting and analyzing, and we had, for its time, uh, advanced algorithms to um, to analyze all the search queries. And there wasn't a thought, there wasn't a lens on it of privacy. Um, what, were the, what were those initial conversations like in in, in, <laughs> in in executive meetings with the CEO, just trying to get those folks to wrap their heads around the implications, privacy implications? Yeah, there were a lot of blank stares uh, uh, initially. It really took, in fact, um, a uh, the acquisition of a company um, that had a a customer list that uh, Ask Jeeves was acquiring that garnered the attention of some attorneys general at the time um, who raised privacy concerns about uh, the acquisition of a customer list and would that data be um, subject still to the privacy policy under which that data was collected um, to really raise awareness at the company of privacy issues. And that's when um, that's when it became uh, more of a forefront issue for the company. But um, it wasn't thought of, the, the search data and other, other information wasn't thought of as a, <clears throat> as a data asset from that standpoint. And because there wasn't much of a regulatory framework to govern it, it was a little bit of the Wild West at that time. Oh, it was totally the Wild West. I remember AOL had a research project they actually publicly released that researchers were able to dig into it and identify specific people who were searching for you know very specific things on AOL search at the time. And it was the first... Uh, it, it was the first public controversy, controversy around uh, uh, search queries being tied to individual people and and, and the, the implications for exposing what actual individuals were searching for. And, and, and there were some public embarrassments at the time. Uh, and fast forward now, we're living in an era where, you know, in exchange for uh, in exchange for seeing likes and 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 retweets on some of these social media things, people have given up everything in exchange for those likes. And we're living in we're living in a world now where you know big companies are uh, uh, hoarding and sitting on 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 data that could have like serious serious complications for people. And it, it's do you do you do you view do you view it as a, as, as just a, a trust issue where you, we, we are going to rely on, on consumers to trust companies to do the right thing? Uh, where are we going to be 10 years from now? It just makes me nervous looking <laughs> at what people do on Facebook, Instagram, and some of these public social networks that it's frightening. 
Yes, I think being nervous in this field is um, comes along with with being in this field. I often um, say to those that I uh, teach about privacy or security or, or help bring into this field um, that uh, one of the one of the downsides to being in the hottest hottest field of the day is that you may have trouble sleeping well at night. Um, so no, I don't believe that trusting companies is going to be um, the the way we manage this. I think there really needs to be some very uh, serious conversations about data. And these conversations ideally would be between um, industry and consumers and regulators around valuation of data, right, the value of it, because I believe that consumers generally don't um, or individuals don't realize how much value and impact their data has. So I think that's a key part. I think discussing data rights, who has the rights to data. And in the U.S., there is a very different uh, default approach than in the rest of the world regarding who has rights to, to data. And then balance, right? There is a lot of good that can come from using data for public good, right, for public safety, for um, for efficiency, and even for personal good. And so how do we best balance that data usage, getting the most that we can out of our big data world, whilst minimizing harms to civil liberties and personal privacy and long-term unintended impacts? And I think that's a conversation that we are, um, that we really need to have in great detail. And it, it's there are no easy answers. <clears throat> but it's incumbent upon us to have those conversations. You talked about uh, uh, ground zero days at Ask Jeeves when there was a uh, regulatory framework was not yet in place. Now we, we've seen the emergence of uh, regulators taking control. Is our industry uh, over-regulated, under-regulated, or, uh, and do you envision uh, dramatic changes to the landscape? And we'll talk about GDPR in a minute because that's a whole nother subject. But here right. in the U.S., here in the U.S., are, are we overregulated, underregulated, or do you think we're right where we should be? I, I think it's worth noting that uh, for a country the size of ours, with the prominence of ours, to not have some type of omnibus privacy legislation that governs at a high level um, data subject rights is is a gap. Right? I think anyone who studies the global privacy landscape um, would agree with that. And so I think there, I think there is an under-regulation from that standpoint in that we're missing um, some umbrella or omnibus um, legislation. But I think that what will happen in the U.S. is that we will be subject to um, or effectively subject to um, a federal... Uh, framework around data just because so many companies must comply with the GDPR. Uh, let's let's segue to the GDPR right now because that's like the, the, the hot button topic now and, and yeah. just you're probably hearing a lot more about it. I am more in the security data protection realm and it's surprising to me that we're not having more conversations about the implications for GDPR. Let's start by just, in, in, in your words, explaining uh, what it is, and specific to U.S. companies, uh, what, are, what, are, what are the main requirements? Sure. So the GDPR is, um, 
which goes into effect in May of this year. Gosh, it's May 25th, correct. Right? Right of this year. So we're looking at five months and counting people. Um, and it really changes how companies can um, collect and use and interact with uh, personal information. And so the impacts from it are really quite tremendous, especially the U.S. Let's back up a second. This affects all European Union nations, correct? So it's it's not just a German thing or a French thing. It's the the, 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 the group of countries within the EU umbrella. Uh, correct. It's those countries and it's the individuals in those countries, right? So for U.S.-based companies that think, well, uh, the GDPR only affects... Uh, let's say, EU countries, that's not true. If you have customers, if you have employees, if you are collecting information from individuals in the EU, um, then this impacts you and you have five months to get your house in order. So to simplify it, if Facebook automatically uh, uh, would fall under there, Amazon would automatically fall under there, any of those folks that have uh, someone within one of these EU countries as a customer or as a a registrant to something. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the Amazons, the Facebooks, those companies are well aware of that. Right. They're going to probably be ahead of the curve. But who are some of the other companies, uh, you know, reaching out to you with blank stares today? Uh, what, what would not necessarily specific companies, but segments of people who may, might not even know that they're they're affected by this and may face some very heavy fines for non-compliance. Yeah, Ryan, it's it's every industry, right? For everything, any, right? It's across the board. Absolutely, this is not sector specific. This is for any. This impacts any company that uh, has the data on EU data subjects. Right, so that could be in the retail industry, in the financial industry, the healthcare industry. It really is is sector agnostic, and I I don't think that I think that there are many companies out there that have not truly understood this. They might have thought that because they uh, complied with the um, predecessor to the GDPR, which was the Data Protection Directive, that they are generally fine, and I think what they're realizing, starting to realize now, and frankly, many are panicking about, is that the GDPR is so much broader and more impactful um, on, I think, especially U.S. companies than the EU Data Protection Directive was. And it's really, it's not just about the lawyers creating new policies. This is really something that CISOs, IT teams, business teams, leadership, privacy folks need to be working together to implement everything from policies to technical changes, system changes, programmatic changes in their company around how to collect, use, and manage data. It's a big lift. And it covers everything from the way uh, breach notifications are sent, uh, user right to access their uh, uh, data. And and the the, the one that stands out, the only one I'm hearing conversation about is this right to be forgotten. Hmm. Data erasure, the right to be forgotten, entitles the data subject to have the data collected, erase his or her personal data, cease from further dissemination of data, and potentially have third parties hot processing of that data. That just sounds so tricky in my mind. It is. And so, again, this is not about just having a policy 
that says, yes, we will comply. It's about implementing it. Right. It's about having systems in place that will can actually operationalize that. And many companies don't. They don't have the ability currently to um, map, track, and manage identities. One of the systems. yeah, one of the ongoing discussions as a, anything regulatory it doesn't have to do with privacy, but anything regulatory, and you know, this is why Washington D.C. is always having this conversation, is the cost to companies. Uh, for preparing and implementing this. I saw a PwC survey that said something about 70% of U.S.-based companies expect to spend between 1 and $10 million just to meet the requirements, and another 10% expect to spend more than $10 million. Do you ex- expect this to have an adverse effect on, on, on startups, uh, uh, just business on the whole? Yes. And and those, do, do, do those numbers sound right to you? I think they sound right for large companies, complex companies. I think a startup isn't going to need to spend one to ten million to uh, bring themselves into compliance with the GDPR. Their advantage is that hopefully, as a startup, they uh, their systems perhaps are more centralized. They're a little more agile, and so they can build in the <clears throat> operational and technical. Um, configurations that they need from an earlier stage. I think it's really the uh, the larger companies that may have legacy systems that are hard to change, that have uh, data subject identities across, decentralized across many systems and networks um, that are harder to manage. I think that's really where the, the big challenge is. What uh, What's the first thing a CPO CISO, CSO, even the chief executive officer should, I mean, if they're not having, if these conversations haven't happened yet, they're already very late. Uh, but what wh- what is the top priorities for, forget the big companies, because those guys have, you know, teams of lawyers in place and they're ahead of the curve. Startups and all these other, you know, uh, uh, sector agnostic uh, industries uh, that have to get their head wrapped around what this means for them. When, when they come to you, what are the top five checklist items that you're driving them to put in place? Sure. So I think the first thing is to understand what data they have, where it is, the data life cycle. Mm-hmm. How does data come into their organization, through which channels, from who, how is it protected within the organization, how is it used, how does it leave the organization, right? Traditional data mapping. So just it, some sort of audit of, uh, you know, all, all, all data within your organization. And you have to assume that European data is in there, right? That's a fair assumption off the bat. I think it's a fair assumption, but certainly needs to be validated. Right. I I have yet to see a company that does a comprehensive data mapping exercise that isn't surprised by some of the information that they find. Either they didn't realize they were collecting certain types, they didn't realize where they were storing it, they didn't realize it was being stored in an unsecure fashion, right? There are always surprises. And it's hard to protect your information if you don't know exactly what you have or where it is. So I think that data mapping is is critical initially. The second thing that I tell them is that... um, I have yet to see a company who can handle these efforts with internal resources. And so, yes, absolutely, they need to... What does that mean? Farming out uh, security work or farming out uh, compliance work to external entities? In some ways, it means bringing in those external specialists to help them. 
So they need to have an internal core team that is focused on uh, GDPR compliance. I think of it as a project team, right? And to me, GDPR is a project until May, and after that, it's a program. So just like any major project or major initiative, there should be some type of lead and committee and stakeholders and budget and uh, metrics that they are held to <clears throat> in order to move it forward. But there is so much to do that I think it, it also needs an external team. As you mentioned, uh, certainly having a law firm in place that has expertise on uh, international privacy law and GDPR, but also bringing in security specialists and privacy specialists. There's just so much to do that most companies cannot support all of the work with their internal internal folks. Who within the company will be held uh, uh, or will, will be responsible for compliance in the whole? It's it's the data protection officer, the CPO. That's the, if 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 you're a company trying to get prepared, which org which organization within the company are you tasking this to? Great question, and I've seen a lot of. Um, uh, juggling of this football in companies because mm -hmm. no one uh, no one wants this hot potato. Um, but ultimately, I think if there is a data governance officer, <clears throat> it could be that person. It could be the chief privacy officer. I've also seen chief compliance officer compliance officers for it. But again, it can't be done regardless of who is quarterbacking it. It cannot be done by any one team. There right. has and it can't live within a silo in the company. Either. Exactly. It has to include the engineers, it has to include coding, it has to include yes. data processing folks. It, it, yes. it sounds like a task for a committee. It really is. And I think that's the biggest surprise for a lot of companies is even companies that were aware of GDPR might have thought of this as a legal or compliance issue and didn't realize and for some didn't budget for the IT and information security lift that is needed. Let's talk, uh, uh, okay, I, I don't think you were finished with your checklist, sorry. Uh, so we talked about uh, this data mapping and auditing. We talked about making sure the right people are in place and, and, and potentially using external, uh, or, or the importance of using external expertise uh, to handle it. It's just so chaotic to me because it seems like you you might be non-compliant but not yet subject to the fines. How do you know when you're subject to fines? Like who's responsible for making sure a company is compliant? Are they, uh, is Europe going to be auditing companies? Like how how is this actually going to be implemented? It just seems so, I just don't understand it. So, <laughs> Well, you're a good company, Ryan. <laughs> I can imagine. You're in good company. I think there is a lot of crystal ball reading that's happening right now uh, regarding what will happen. Right, but May. we're five months away from this. Yes. Yes, and so what we're um, what we and and lawyers and security experts and privacy experts are advising companies to do is move as quickly as possible to get into compliance with what we believe the GDPR requires, and um, and spend less time trying to figure out what will happen after May because we don't have answers to that. The The bit of tea leaf reading that we can do um, based on some of the conversations that have been happening both formally and informally with some of the uh, data protection commissioners in the EU is there is a lot of concern 
about the lack of understanding of business operations by some of the regulators. And so that is producing a lot of concern uh, for companies. So just even to understand if a company is compliant or not uh, requires a certain level of expertise. Yes. Uh, the yes. fines range, uh, it, they're, they're pretty steep when I read the GDPR, on the GDPR FAQ, on their website, uh, steep penalties of up to 20 million or 4% of global annual turnover, whichever is higher for non-compliance. Yes. Do, you expect, do you expect to see uh, companies being fined uh, post, uh, post-incident, post-breach, uh, it kind of go into effect only after there's an incident or because as I'm reading it, non-compliance, you can, you can never have a breach and still be non-compliant. Correct. Um, I think that's correct. Because to me, a breach is a, is a data loss event. Right. Um, there could be non-compliance with the GDPR that doesn't result in a uh, data loss event or data breach, but there is still liability under the GDPR. Right, and you you may not have a, a you know click to remove option for this right to be forgotten component. If if you don't have a system in place to implement this right to be forgotten, you're non-compliant. Like and and, and as you go through this list, you can see non-compliance across the board. Uh, very very easy for companies to be non-compliant. Absolutely, absolutely. Records of processing, data portability. There are a number of requirements under the GDPR, uh, any one of which could result in a failure to comply with the GDPR and not necessarily a data breach. How do you see this being enforced, though? Well, it will be interesting to see <laughs> how all right, how activist the, um, the regulators, the are, regulators yeah. in the EU will be um, and how quickly they're going to act. I think my guess is that they will act quite quickly against some of the larger targets, the larger companies, um, those whom they are already not happy with. Right. Um, I think that will be the first wave. And they have a, a lower level of tolerance for privacy-related issues than we do here in the U.S. Um, you know, some, some European yes. countries are a lot stricter than, but just in general as a whole, European, uh, European Union countries have a lower level of tolerance for this stuff so exactly i think there's more of a zero tolerance approach you know in the u.s for companies that are looking at their privacy or security programs we often advise them there are a number of frameworks out there to look at um whether it's gappy or federal sentencing guidelines right that lay out the elements of an effective compliance program with the idea that if there is an adverse event when the regulator looks at the steps a company has taken, there are some points given or credit given for good faith efforts, right? And that same approach is not um, the way that the EU looks at things, right? There, There aren't points given for good faith efforts to have an effective privacy or security program. Right. There has been a misstep or an act of noncompliance or a breach they they aren't giving brownie points for all of the steps you have taken to try to prevent that. And you expect them to be very strict with implementation, uh, especially for some for some uh, big name targets, like you mentioned. I, I think that's what past activity would indicate. 
Are there types of privacy data that the GDPR is seeking to protect that are uh, that that are there any new types? I noticed they mentioned, you know, basic identity information, name, address, ID numbers, uh, web data address. That's pretty normal. But now we're getting into health and genetic data, biometric data, racial, ethnic data, sexual orientation, political opinions. Uh, any of those are new as it relates to what the older law was? You know, I think the, the EU has always taken a more protective approach to personal information than we have um than we have in the US. And so that same approach uh, still applies. But I think, let's say for um, retailers, for example, let's say US-based retailers who may not have had as much regulation under US law until now are realizing that the profiling that they're doing on their customers and potential customers may include information that is considered sensitive under the um, GDPR and are having to um, to really evaluate that and whether or not it's worth it for them, whether the value of that data is worth it and whether they can use it in the same way as they have uh, under the new law. And it, the, the data, data breach reporting is required within 72 hours of the breach being detected. Do you expect we'll see a lot more uh, public uh, uh, acknowledgments of data breaches as a result of this? Because I don't think we're as in the U.S. as strict as, as this will be. We definitely aren't in the U.S. I, I think it's a real challenge uh, for companies to be held to a 72-hour standard. And that is because... Um, I had to say, it's tr- very, very tricky. Very, right? Because there's in most cases, there's very little information that you know initially. And what you're trying to do is get more information so that you're not scaring people unnecessarily, so that you're not releasing um, notices that are inaccurate or incomplete. And no one provides you with a memo when you're told that there's been a data loss event that says, here are all the people who were impacted and here's where it happened and the dates, right? That takes that forensics takes in some cases weeks exactly. and months, yeah. Exactly, forensics investigation. And so I, I have concerns that by requiring companies to notify in 72 hours, what we're going to have is a lot of... Uh, a lot of information. Yes. Yes, and I don't think that that is ultimately good for individuals. Uh, but at the same time, it forces companies not to sit on stuff for too long. And we also have a problem on the flip side of that, where companies are aware of a breach and uh, notifications go out when there's a media leak maybe or when someone else finds out and and, and this does force companies to get their forensics teams in place get their uh, post-breach incident response process in place uh, pre-breach to make sure you know they're handling this in a timely manner I think 72 hours just seems almost impossible yes even for companies that have all of those things that you just mentioned in place, which I absolutely recommend to companies to have in place. Have a uh, forensics company, a data breach response vendor, law firms, have each of these folks, uh, these companies in place and under contract before you have a breach. But even with that, even in those turnkey situations, it still is going to take more than 72 hours to understand what's happening. And that leaves everyone uh, non-compliant because, like, it, it, it's just it's just so 
it, it, it's startling to me that this goes into in place in five months. Uh, I, I I'm I'm guessing. I think it's a solid guess that uh, very few companies fully comp even like I mean you're a security privacy expert. Uh, just comprehending the implications is is hard. There's a lot of stuff is still up for interpretation. You know what is a reasonable level of protection for personal data? Like the, the law requires a le- reasonable level of protection. You can interpret that in many ways. Uh, you know how who defines what constitutes reasonable? It it it, it just seems so. Uh, what's the word? Random. Hmm. I think it is definitely for those who uh, have started to truly understand it. It is the weight of it can be crushing. And for those who aren't feeling crushed by it, I think it's because they have yet to understand the implications. Are you are you feeling a lot of those calls? Yes. And are is it are are they nervous calls or are they? Uh, yeah. Help help me understand what's in the mind of a data protection officer within a company. Yes. So often what will happen is that there may be one or a handful of people who are understanding the implications at a company and surrounded by others who don't yet see it, right? And so they just think that whether it's the DPO or the CISO or the CPO are chicken little, right? Running around with their... Mm-hmm. Uh, heads cut off saying the sky is falling. And so they are looking for someone to help them both educate their leadership quickly and to help do the work. That's crazy to me. That's the main need. And for those companies who understand it and and their leadership is on board about it, um, they, most of those are, most of those companies are engaged already with a team of security experts, privacy experts, law firms, to help them get the work done. In our fields, in the security and privacy consulting fields, everyone is busy right now, and a lot of it is with GDPR work. It, uh, it's a heavy focus of C- CPOs now. Sure. Do you anticipate something this stringent uh, finding its way across the pond uh, to the U.S., or do you, do, you, do you think we'll never get there? Because we're, we're pretty anti-regulation here in the U.S. Right. I, I don't see the U.S. passing a law uh, that is similar, but I think that many companies will, um, from a de facto standpoint, will uh, will be complying with the um, with these standards, right? Because they need to comply with the GDPR in order to continue their operations. So, so I think automatically, by default, you'll be at a higher standard. You'll be held to a higher standard anyway. I think so. And that's a good thing. Many would say that. <laughs> I want to just pick your brain quickly before we wrap up on uh, your opinion on a couple of uh, privacy-related uh, topics as it relates to privacy versus uh, right to privacy versus um, uh, security. A uh, big sure. debate in the industry, obviously, is whether law enforcement and governments and, 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 and agencies uh, have the right to break encryption when there's a national security or a criminal component, uh, uh, depending on it, where do you fall in, in this ongoing debate? Because I feel like the debate lacks nuance. There's a lot, a lot of people understanding each other's side. Uh, just curious as a, as a privacy uh, expert, where you see this heading? Where I see it heading? I think that um, I think that it is a very complex topic, and that it, along with some 
additional but related topics such as Fourth Amendment search and seizure rights for automated or unmanned devices. I think these are the topics that we need to be having conversations about. Um, because as technology is changing and um, on both sides, right, we want to protect individual rights, but we also know that the, the threat landscape has become so much more um, both active and complex, right? How do we balance um, how do we balance these sometimes conflicting needs? And I, I think there isn't one easy answer. And so I think we need to have some um, very frank conversations with, uh, with top thought leaders and regulators um, and privacy experts to try to find that right balance. So, so when the FBI director gets up and says we need to have access to potential or a suspected terrorist's iPhone and Apple says, uh, no, that's a slippery slope. How, how do we ever get to a point where we're taking into consideration the needs of law enforcement to actually be able to conduct proper investigation and the right for people to have their stuff protected and, 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 and properly encrypted uh, forever? That's a, that, that, do, you, do you think that's a debate we'll ever get any sort of reach, any sort of common ground on? I, I think we'll reach decision on. I don't know if it will be common ground, <clears throat> but you know it, the the concept is not new, right? In the U.S., we have had uh, conversations and we have law around when, let's say, wiretapping can occur, mm-hmm. right? Around mm-hmm. when um, searches and seizures can occur that balance the rights of law enforcement as well as the rights of individuals. And I think that technology is just change so the medium is different and is more complicated but the underlying concepts are not that different and so i do believe that we'll reach some some framework for it but it's just it's taking some time to do that as the technology is evolving so quickly and lastly to wrap up you are i was excited to see you're a senior technical advisor on the hbo series silicon valley what was, yes. what was that like? I saw you were actually, you're, you're in the credits, in the season four credits as a senior technical advisor. Were you, were you on set? Did you get a role as an extra? <laughs> <laughs> it, it has been so much fun, and, and you will see me again in the credits for season five. Um, what, are they, what are they reaching out to you for? So I help them to incorporate privacy into their storyline. Right, so there were a couple of episodes where there was an arc around um, COPPA and around data collection from children. And I loved being able to uh, share my knowledge with them on a show that I love. I, I've been a longtime fan and to help incorporate it into the storyline of the show. You know, one of the, the highlights for me, or maybe even career highlights, is um, at some point within the year or so after the episodes had aired, I was at a um, a workshop where I heard an FTC attorney speaking about that episode, about the episode um, COPPA, and he said that that episode did more to educate tech companies on COPPA and on uh, the privacy rights for kids online than any of the efforts they have done over the uh, over the years to educate. And I thought, what oh, an amazing! Must have been such a thrill. It really was. It really was. Um, Do you so think we was, can get them to talk about GDPR, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, you never know. You'll have to. Uh, oh, I gotta watch the show now. I gotta watch season five. 
<laughs> exactly. Sharon, thank you very much. Uh, we could go on and on talking. We I think we're at 45 minutes. So I, I'd love to have you back once uh, GDPR is in place and we start to understand ramifications. I think uh, a podcast dedicated only to that uh, post to me. 25th would be really, really interesting uh, as we start to see the fallout from it. Well, thank you, Ryan. I'd be happy to. I know that there will be no shortage of topics. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you.